Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 54, Apartheid of Death. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Release the hounds when we release the hounds. Throw a hamster in the bin when we throw hamsters into bins. <laughs> and today I'll be telling you about Season 3, Episode 19, Dog of Death. That aired on March the 12th, 1992, two weeks after the previous episode. Now I'm going to be talking about the apartheid referendum in South Africa. It took place on March 17th, 1992, five days after Dog of Death first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. A hearty hello from the Petri dish that is Liverpool, where the Rand Corporation in conjunction with the saucer people, under the supervision of the reverse vampires, are using 5G to force people to get COVID tests. <laughs> I'm here to say, if you live in Liverpool, get tested. There's a ton of centres, book in advance that it's really efficient. And the procedure? It's not so bad. They go in through your nose, and they let you keep the piece of brain they cut out. Then you get a slice of cheese pizza and a glass of baby's blood. Bill Gates fits your chip and it's off you go. Now, real talk time. You swab your throat for six seconds, three either side, and then stick it up your nose for ten. You've got to get it right in there. It's not nice. You may gag and sneeze, but it's a small price to pay. And I got a text with my result within half an hour, if that. Really, I just stopped for a takeaway coffee, walked the ten minutes home, and in it came. Then you pop the code in your app. Bob's your uncle. Very little effort for your own peace of mind, the safety of others, and the once distant hope of actually having a goddamn pipe with my friends before Christmas. There you go. Don't say we don't do public service announcements. Absolutely. But let's go back to the past, where it was slightly less COVID-y. When this aired on March the 12th, 1992, what was the UK number one? It was still Stay by Shakespeare's Sister. With I Love Your Smile, which we uh, discussed last time, second. My Girl, which we've also already talked about, third. And at number four, it's the KLF with America, What Time Is Love? But I've been to that well too often, and we all know it's not on Spotify. So, sorry about this, but at number five, it's Guns and Roses with November Rain. Well, that's fine. So the first thing to say is, when you get to this on the playlist... You are allowed to skip this one. This innuendo and anniversary waltz, I'd say, are acceptable skips. And I'm only saying that for the length, because this song lasts 22 hours. <laughs> yes, Guns and Roses. We haven't done them before, so I don't know. This might be fun. Formed from the ashes of the bands L.A. Guns and Hollywood Rose. So it's not just an ironic name. They got a good live reputation before signing for Geffen Records. Later, they would have a spat with label mates Nirvana. So it's worth noting that, like Nirvana, they signed for Geffen for less money than other labels were offering them due to the offer of increased creative control. 
They recorded the album everyone remembers, Appetite for Destruction, in early 1987. But it didn't do too well until Sweet Child of Mine became a smash hit single the following year. Axl Rose then almost immediately came out as racist and homophobic on the album that no one remembers, GNR Lies. Then there were a lot of drugs. And what happens when you take a lot of drugs? You get a ridiculous artistic statement. In this case, that was releasing two albums on the same day. Use Your Illusion 1 and, get ready for this shocker, Use Your Illusion 2. Two went to number one and one went to number two in the Billboard album charts, with the sales differential in the first week being around 85,000 copies, which seems a bizarrely wide gap for two practically identical albums by the same band. The single is from one of those two albums. I'm kidding. I looked it up. It's, it's Use Your Illusion 1, I think. At 8 minutes 57 seconds, it is still the longest song ever to reach the Billboard Top 10. And in 2018, the completely overblown video became the first music video to be watched a billion times on YouTube. And it got to number one in Poland. The Use Your Illusion albums would be the last original material released by the band until 2008. I was going to try and summarize the absolute mess that was the intervening years and the years since. But instead, I urge you to go and read it yourself, because this podcast could go another 20 minutes before I even start on The Simpsons, where I'd scratch the surface of the comings and goings there. Maybe we'll see them again on our way through time. And if that happens, I'll dig a bit deeper. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.2, which is equivalent to around 13.1 million viewers. It was the top show on Fox for the week, 19th overall, and once again, beat The Cosby Show. The production number is 8F17, and the credited writer is the completely invented John Schwarzwelder, who we discussed in episode 5, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. Mm-hmm. The chalkboard gag is, I saw nothing unusual in the teacher's lounge. Certainly not that Mrs. Krabappel and Principal Skinner were in the closet making babies, and I saw one of the babies, and the baby looked at me. And the couch gag is, Homer lies down, and everyone sits on him again. I feel like I've seen that one about four times. Maybe I haven't. But what actually happens? Well, the Simpsons are going to win the lottery. Or so it would seem, as everyone's a winner with the state lottery of the state that Springfield is in. Actual odds of winning, one in 380 million. The jackpot is up to $130 million, though. So it's worth a quick punt, just maybe not as many punts as Homer has. Homer buys 50 tickets and has to ask the family for lucky numbers, revealing in the process that he doesn't know how old Bart is or Bart and Lisa's birthdays. Marge is not as excited as Homer expected when he reveals that he has a feeling that they may win the lottery. And she's quite happy with her one syndicate ticket. They watch a news broadcast about the lottery that reveals that every copy of Shirley Jackson's book of the same name has been checked out, but that it is of no help as it's a chilling tale of conformity gone mad. Homer probably throws his copy into the fireplace that only seems to exist when Homer wants to burn something. (laughs) (laughs) Not so chilling now, eh? Pause for laughter. And off we go again. Meanwhile, Skinner speculates on what the school can buy with half of the profits from the lottery. Tom, what has he dreamt up? Oh, math books that don't have that base six crap in them. Yes. History, History books that know when the Korean War came out. It's how the Korean War ended, but I'll, I'll you know, oh, okay. partial credit. Yeah, yeah, at least I got the right war. And a detention centre where children are held in place with magnets. 
Always with the magnets. Yes. Mm. Fantastic. A down-in-the-mouth looking Santa's little helper slumps in front of the TV as Homer thinks about what to do with the lottery winnings he's definitely going to get. Imagining Lenny looking closer and seeing that he's now the biggest man in the world and covered in 14-karat gold before telling Mr. Burns to take a hike and taking over the power plant before also apparently being covered in jewels. Perfectly normal thoughts there. Life comes to a standstill with everyone from Krusty to the police department waiting on the result. But it's bad news for Homer, who's out of the game a mere two numbers in. The winner is, of all people, Kent Brockman, who is reporting live from the scene of his own triumph. Then just as Marge notes that they may have lost the lottery, but at least they have each other, Grandpa announces that the dog is dead. The dog's status is immediately upgraded to alive, but he's really not in a good state. A visit to a very intense vet brings bad news. Santa's little helper has a twisted stomach and will die without surgery. The surgery will cost $750, which coincidentally leads Homer to tell Bart about doggy heaven, whilst on the way back from the hospital with a noticeably not operated on dog. Homer can't justify the expense, instead promising to get Bart a better dog with an untwistable stomach. But he also can't resist SLH's sad eyes and resolves to find a way to pay for the surgery. His pleas to Mr. Burns fall on deaf ears and Marge forbids him from performing the operation himself, leading him to burn another book. The family resolve to tighten their belts, with Bart moving to free barber college haircuts, Homer giving up beer, Lisa her encyclopedias and Marge her weekly lottery ticket. They also make changes to the meal schedules. Tom, can you remember what night becomes what night? Right, okay. Fried chicken night becomes organ meat night. Ham night becomes spam night. Pork chop night becomes chub night. Correct. That's uh, three out of three or six out of six, depending on how I decide to score it, which I clearly haven't decided. Chub. Chub is a fish. But it's also Ah. apparently a way of packing sausage. So I I think it's the latter, because it would be more of a like-for-like swap for pork chops. That's my theory, anyway. Okay. Homer does try to sell them on the one way he's found to keep his beer, become a family of travelling acrobats. But unfortunately, it's not a goer. And it's nearly all for nothing, as the dog dies on the operating table, only saved by mouth-to-mouth from the vet, which is just gross. Anyway, he survives, but the family are already fed up with their budget choices two days later, with Homer wishing for the snouts that the dog gets as he deals with Chub Knight. Kent Brockman's back on the television, and the only consolation for Homer is that for all his money, there's one thing that Kent can't buy. A dinosaur. (laughs) The school can't buy anything, though, getting one whole eraser from the deal. And worse than that, Marge's usual lottery numbers come up, Homer is dancing for quarters, and Lisa has to study Copernicus from a biography she found at the bus station. <laughs> the family shun the dog, and feeling unloved, he scarpers when the gate is left open. He gets up to all kinds of adventures in the wilderness, including fighting a bear, chasing a cat, and rescuing a baby from a burning building, before being taken to the pound, where he is picked up by Mr. Burns of all people. Monty is looking for a replacement for Crippler, one of the more vintage of his hounds who's apparently been on the team since the late 60s. As the family search for their errant dog, Burns reprograms him as a vicious, soulless killer via the Ludovico technique. Bart eventually comes to Burns Manor in his door-to-door search, and the hounds are duly released. But luckily, Santa's little helper recalls his good times with Bart before he can savage him, and chases the rest of the team off. 
He returns home and is the centre of attention as we learn that no dogs were harmed in the making of this episode. A cat got sick and somebody shot a duck, but that was it. <laughs> so uh, as we discussed just after recording the last uh, podcast, I, I'm I'm not mad keen on this episode. There's uh, there's good jokes, but it seems more sparsely populated with them than, than other episodes from this time. I, I was all ready to give it a proper slagging off. And then you reminded me that I actually have a scene from this episode tattooed on my forearm. And yes. therefore, it seems a little bit churlish to go in all guns blazing. <laughs> yeah, and we disagree there because I really like this one. Pro- probably more for the lottery stuff rather than rather than the dog stuff. I think it's just a strong opening. Springfield's always fantastic when everyone goes a bit crazy. Uh, and we, we definitely see that. You, you can see the hurricane fever several years before the hurricane there. So, yeah, I, I agree. That that bit's good. It's, is it just dog episodes? I don't seem to be able to get down with dog episodes. We've, we've had this before with uh, Bart's dog gets an F. Possibly. So, would you like to go on to the character debuts? Uh, yeah, there's a, few, there's a few little minor ones here, aren't there? Well, the main one I saw was the vet. But when I looked the vet up, he doesn't seem to have a name. He doesn't even seem to have an expanded backstory in the comics. And I thought, he appears loads of times. It turns out they're all clip shows. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think he's only he's only fleeting. Other than that, so I must admit the character debut section uh, is on hiatus for retooling because uh, there was there was nothing really to note. Although one thing we can note in terms of character progress is that Kemp Brockman wins the lottery, and he is still seen to be uh, living in a mansion in later episodes. Yes, he is indeed. Of course, shoe shine, sir. All right, catch you all the way back. So that takes us on to the did you knows. Don't worry, I actually have some material for this. The Ludovico technique, where Santa's little helper is strapped to a chair with his eyes clamped open and forced to watch negative imagery, is a concept taken from Anthony Burgess's 1962 novel A Clockwork Orange and presented near identically to that scene in Stanley Kubrick's 1971 movie adaptation. Whilst I don't want to dwell on the particular episode I'm about to mention, there is a sighting in this episode of the Turbo Nonce Expressway, as established in Season 3, Episode 1, Stark Raving Dad. In fact, there's quite a lot of continuity in this episode. Mr. Burns brings attention to Flanders' running shoes at one point, which are, in fact, the assassins he was wearing in our last dog-heavy episode. Season 2, Episode 16, Bart's dog gets an F. And we also see a Have You Seen My Body Today poster from Season 3, Episode 4, Bart the Murderer. And what of the celebrity-owned dogs in Doggy Hell? Well, Homer mentions the lassie that was evil. That doesn't return many search results that aren't quotes from this episode. (laughs) So I tried to find out how many dogs have played lassie, with surprisingly little success. So thanks to Ben Baker from the excellent Don't Let's Chart podcast for his help on this one specifically pointing me towards an interview in Modern Farmer magazine with author Ace Collins, who wrote 1993's Lassie, A Dog's Life, The First 50 Years. Ace is obviously a bit of an authority on this, and he says there have been 11 generations of dogs that played Lassie, starting with Pal, the original Lassie, and followed by Pal's sons and grandsons and so forth. Hang on. Sons? Yes. Lassie? A lady dog was regularly played by man dogs on screen. According to IMDb, this is because female collies have regular noticeable shedding cycles. As to the males, but they're apparently less noticeable on camera. I'd have just painted a horse myself. Yeah. 
And the man dogs also look more impressive because they're bigger. Homer also mentioned Adolf Hitler's dog. Now there's a rabbit hole. Because Hitler had a few dogs, as it turned out. But the most famous is Blondie, a female German shepherd who didn't get on with Ava Braun's two Scottish terriers, Nagus and Stasi. <laughs> and I struggle to think if there are any more stereotypical names she could have given those dogs. <laughs> Ava Braun had a, had a dog called Stasi. Wow. This was, that would have been before the Stasi existed. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps it lent its name. It's, uh... Oh yeah, maybe the Stasi are named after Ava Braun's <laughs> dog. Imagine that. <laughs> Um, so, so now things get particularly sad because, as it turns out, Blondie was killed when Hitler ordered that the cyanide capsules he'd been given to prevent him from falling into the hands of the advancing Russians be tested on poor Blondie just one day before Hitler himself committed suicide by the same method. But certain observers have said that he didn't actually expect it to work because he thought Himmler had turned on him. So there we go. One of one of the last views of Hitler was him being absolutely gutted because he killed his dog by accident. And the sad thing is, Blondie was literally one day away from retirement as being Hitler's dog. Exactly. Exactly. She was already too old for it. And finally, when Homer speaks of Richard Nixon's dog, I think we have to assume he means Checkers rather than Timaho, Pasha or Vicky, which were the three dogs that lived with the Nixons in the White House during his presidency. For you see, Checkers, a cocker spaniel who was a key part of a speech Nixon gave defending himself against financial impropriety when running for vice president on the ticket with Ike Eisenhower. Let's get busy. Sadly, did not survive to see his owner rule the free world, instead dying at the frankly pretty decent age of 13 in 1964, four years before Nixon was elected president. And given what happened with that? Perhaps it's best checkers didn't live to see it. Mm. Bit of a down note there with the uh, with all the dying dogs. Perhaps, uh, perhaps Tom, you can perk us up with some memeable moments. Well, before I do, I've got a couple of did you knows of my own. Oh my God! Right, <coughs> tell on. So the first of my did you knows is that when Homer throws his copy of Canine Surgery onto the fire, you can see. Quite a few books are already on there. One of them is, of course, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. But another one is Bill Cosby's book. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's fatherhood, as as uh, referenced in the uh, National Fatherhood Institute episode. They were showing some fantastic foresight there, <laughs> destroying something that uh, he created. Don't want to mention his name too many times. And the other, did you know, is that... There's that montage where Santa's little helper is going around the county that's just outside Springfield. And you never see the name of the county on the map all in one go. You see bits of it. But if you piece it together, you can see that it's called Schwarzwelder County. Of course. Yes. Another red herring reference to our favourite made up writer. Yeah, exactly. So made up writer, made up county. They were trying to tell us. <laughs> they were trying to tell us all those years ago so yeah that, that's my did you knows fantastic right well let's get on to memeable moments right there are absolutely loads i've gone for 11 and again it's one of those situations where you could argue there's more depending on your own personal take really so i'll just rattle through these so the very first line in the show is a memeable moment it's we won the lottery. Why don't you win the lottery too? 
at all when you're going to regret the meal. Then we've got one that we've already talked about, which is Skinner's planned detention hall and the nameless teacher going, magnets, always with the magnets. Number three is what you've got tattooed on your arm, which is uh, you're the biggest man of the world now and you're covered in gold. All hail King Homer. <laughs> yep. Then you've got Grandpa saying, ah, I knew we wouldn't win. And Homer getting up and going, well, why didn't you tell the rest of us? Why did you keep it a secret? <laughs> Number five, possibly my favourite bit from the episode, which is a bit, which is a little sadistic, but uh, it's the vet where he's trying to resuscitate a hamster without any success, and the hamster dies, and he goes, "This is part of a job I hate." Picks up the hamster and, without even looking, gets a perfect bullseye, throws it into the bin from a basketball hoop. Now, I've never thrown a hamster into a bin before, but all credit to the sound work on this episode, because I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's exactly what it would sound like. <laughs> Squelch Russell. Yeah. He was an 80s comedian, wasn't he, Squelch Russell? <laughs> he is now. Yeah. Um, number six. Bart, what's your language? Oh, you did. Sorry. Number seven, Mr. Burns and Smithers. If I came into your house and started sniffing your crotch and slobbering all over your face, what would you say uh, if you did it, sir? Number eight. Uh, uh, this is a specific frame, which has become a meme. But when Homer's told that pork chop night will be chub night, he covers his face and goes, oh. And that frame of, of him covering his face is just used to represent despondency all over the Internet. So that's where this comes from. I'm pretty sure it's been recycled in other episodes, but... I think this is the first time it appears. Anyway, number nine. He's got all the money in the world, but there's one thing he can't buy. What's that? A dinosaur. Then number 10 comes straight after it. It's um, it's Principal Skinner being presented with one eraser and him losing it, going, I'm used to my government betraying me. I was in Nam. I serve a fridge. And then he's cut off. And finally, some absolutely fantastic observations from Homer. Oh, he's gone and he's never coming back. Wait, there he is. No, that's a horse. <laughs> so there you go. A plethora of memeable moments. You might also consider um, right at the end where Homer says, uh, the cat, what's the point? But eh, up in the air, that one. Excellent. Well, I don't... we have noticed the moments have been growing as we uh, as we march through the series. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I must admit, half of this stuff I didn't realise was in this episode until I watched it back. But that's kind of what this this era of The Simpsons is like, especially sort of seasons three to about five. I just can't place where everything is, but it's all really good. Yeah, I can't I can't wait till we get to Itchy and Scratchy Land because that is just wall to wall memes. <laughs> Whole episodes of memes, it's incredible. We might have to do a bonus episode, which is just the memes on that one. But. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but we'll cross that bridge when we come to yeah. it oh by the way on youtube the other day i found a video which is just simpsons memes it's really quick cut like one after the other and the video is 35 minutes long oh wow that sounds like a great way to spend half an hour actually we'll, we'll have to share that on the twitter yeah excellent well before we get too carried away let's let's take a look at our moment in history yes okay my bit so I'm telling the story of the South African referendum of March the 17th, 1992, an important step in the road to ending apartheid. 
But I hear you cry, Tom, you've already talked about South Africa in episode six, Moaning Mandela. So why are you revisiting it? Well, this gives me an opportunity to get into more detail about a specific event and to go over stuff I skimmed over last time. Also, the popular impression to the end of apartheid is that Nelson Mandela was freed. And after that, it was all pretty straightforward. Well, as we will find out, that wasn't the case at all. Also, we'll learn a bit more about the apartheid leaders of South Africa, because old, white, powerful men haven't, haven't got enough attention recently, I don't think. South Africa on March 17th, 1992. What is the story so far? Well, the apartheid system had been in place since 1948. Under it, what you could and couldn't do in South Africa was determined by your skin colour. However, it's important to remember that apartheid did not spring up overnight. Various laws that limited the freedoms of various people were introduced throughout the 19th century, including by everyone's favourite imperialist mining magnate, Cecil Rhodes. His government of the Cape Colony passed the Glen Grey Act. This act forced black farmers to pay a tax on their land. If they couldn't pay, the land was given to white settlers. Discrimination continued when the country we more or less know as South Africa today came into existence. I'll just give a very brief overview. Towards the end of the 19th century, South Africa was in four parts. To the west and south was the British Cape Colony, where the British held the colonial influence. Over in the northeast, the Afrikaners, white settlers of mostly Dutch ancestry, had set up the South African Republic and the Orange Free State. Following the Boer Wars, the British established control over the whole country and declared the Union of South Africa in 1910. The first elections for the new country were held the same year. The elections of 1910 saw rather limited participation. Women couldn't vote, and in the former Boer states, only white people could vote. In the former British colony, black and quote-unquote coloured people, remember that's the terminology of the time, they could vote so long as they met stringent criteria based on things like land ownership. Of course, not that many people did, so across the country, the size of the electorate was rather limited. Gareth, I want to see if you can guess how big the electorate of South Africa was in 1910. Oh, I mean, not only is this geography, it's it's human geography. So I'm doubly sort of out of luck here. Right. I'm going to say 100,000. You are more or less bang on. It- yes. Fantastic. I never get these right. Yep, it is it was more or less bang on a hundred thousand people. A country the size of South Africa, only a hundred thousand people could vote. So the election was contested by three parties, and they would form the basis of white South African parties for decades to come. The smallest was the Labour Party, a socialist party who represented the working classes. Then there was the South African Nationalist Party. They were led by Boer War hero Louis Boffer, and they favoured independence from Britain. Finally, there was the Unionist Party. They were led by Leander Starr Jameson, a former prime minister of the British Cape Colony. Unsurprisingly, they favoured close ties with the UK. And the 1910 election was a prime example of how democracy can be very, very broken. The Unionist Party got just under 40,000 votes nationwide, whereas the Nationalists came second with just over 30,000. However, despite the Nationalists taking just 28% of all votes cast, you know, less than a third, they won 66 out of 121 seats in the House of Assembly, and Louis Boffer became South Africa's first Prime Minister. By the time of the 1915 election, the National Party had split, with Louis Boffer becoming part of the new South African Party. 
The difference between the two was the National Party was more hardline in its African policies than the South African Party. The South African Party won the election in 1915 and Boffa remained Prime Minister. Boffa would die in office in 1919. Therefore, an election was held the following year. Although the National Party under J.B.M. Herzog won the most seats, they didn't have enough for a majority and a coalition of the South African Party and the Unionist Party won the election. This brought Jan Smuts into his first spell as Prime Minister. Smuts was another important figure in the Boer Wars, and he helped shape the Union's constitution. The power and popularity of the Union's party dwindled, and they were forced to merge with the South African Party, their much larger coalition partners. As the political landscape had changed somewhat, Smuts called a general election for 1921, so there were two elections in two years. Smuts continued as Prime Minister, but the end of the First World War was followed by an economic depression in South Africa. This led to the Rand Rebellion, an armed uprising that Smuts put down by force. An election was called for 1924 and Smuts lost it to Herzog, with the Nationalist Party taking control. The Nationalist Party would rule South Africa until 1934, when they merged with the rival South African Party, still led by Jan Smuts, to form the United Party. I do like the names of the South African political parties. They're kind of the opposite of what you got on the Soviet Union. It's sort of what you see is what you get. We're a political party and we're in South Africa. We shall call ourselves a South African party. Or we've been formed from two other parties. We shall call ourselves the United Party. So the United Party comfortably won the 1938 election and Herzog stayed on as prime minister. But it saw the emergence of the leader of a new party, the Purified National Party, led by one D.F. Milan. And if that name sounds scary, then it should. I do not like the presence of Purified in well, the name yes. of that party. Exactly. So they were a bunch of hard-right Afrikaners who were very much white supremacists. They were against the merger of the parties and they formed a splinter party. They considered themselves pure, hence the Purified National Party, which is nice. So the outbreak of World War II in 1939 caused a schism in South African politics. South Africa was a sovereign state at this point and had no obligation to get involved in the war. Also, the Boer Wars were still very much in living memory, and many of the Afrikaners had no intention of helping an old wartime foe. Prime Minister Herzog was amongst those who did not want to get involved. However, the majority in the party did, and Herzog resigned. He was replaced by Jan Smuts, who would leave the country through the Second World War and win the election of 1943. However, Herzog was not finished. After leaving the United Party, the remnants he took with him merged with D.F. Milan's purified National Party to form the reunited National Party so far. You with me so far? It's very swings and roundabouts. So then in 1948 came the election that changed everything. The reunited National Party, led by the white supremacist D.F. Milan, was up against the elder statesman and World War II leader Jan Smuts, who by the time of the election was 78. His United Party received nearly 50% of the votes, getting over 520,000. The reunited National Party got way less, getting just over 400,000. However, thanks to the first-past-the-post system and some horribly devious gerrymandering, the reunited National Party won 70 of the 153 seats, allowing them to head a coalition government with a right-wing Africana party. 
The election was a turning point for South Africa because one of the first things that the new government did was set up the apartheid system. Now, like I say, I've already gone over it in episode six, and we all know how utterly vile it was. The reunited National Party, which had come to be known as just the National Party by this point, held power in South Africa throughout the 50s and 60s, and the apartheid system became ever more entrenched. In 1961, South Africa adopted a new constitution and became a republic, complete with a largely ceremonial state president. The office of the prime minister was still where all the power was. And from 1966, the prime minister was one B.J. Borster. Now, 1976 saw the Soweto uprising. In an attempt to get black people to learn Afrikaans, the government decreed that schools must use it alongside English as the main language taught to school children. It was incredibly unpopular with black people as it was seen as the language of apartheid. On June the 16th, 1976, thousands of school children marched to the Orlando Stadium for a rally to protest against the language laws. The police responded by opening fire on the children, killing hundreds. In the aftermath, Prime Minister Borster set up a secret task force to clamp down further, bypassing Parliament. Once his secretive ways were discovered, it caused a scandal that saw Borster resign as Prime Minister to be replaced with P.W. Boffer. Now, I should say at this point that the outright murder of schoolchildren was not why B.J. Borster had to stand down. It was because of how he was misappropriating funds, essentially. Okay. Yes. I mean, if you look at those two things, one immediately stands out as worse than the other. Yes. But this is white South Africa we're talking about. Anyway, so following the scandal, Vorster stood for state president and he was promptly elected to the post. Remember, the rich and powerful fall upwards. It didn't last long, however, as another scandal brought him down. He used a secret slush fund to found an English language newspaper called The Citizen, famous for being the only English newspaper that wasn't critical of the government. Once that was discovered, he resigned as president. So with P.W. Boffer in charge, South Africa embarked on some rather minor reforms. In 1983, Boffer proposed a new constitution which saw the creation of two new parliaments, the House of Representatives for Coloureds, again, language of the time, and the House of Delegates for Indians, retaining the House of Assembly for white people. Each part of this new tricameral parliament would pass laws for the races they represented. The constitution also saw the office of the prime minister abolished and the powers of it replaced by the office of the president. This made the president the executive, making South Africa much more like the USA. Members of the National Party who were unhappy with these changes broke away and formed the Conservative Party, a right-wing party dedicated to the preservation of apartheid. So remember in this story, just like in the UK, the Conservative Party are the bad guys. As president, Boffer built up the South African military in response to conflicts that were going on at the borders. In Angola, the civil war was raging. See episode 33, Angolan Civil War of the Simpsons for more on that. And there was also a civil war in Mozambique between the ruling Marxist party backed by the Soviet Union and rebels backed by South Africa and the West. In 1988, Reagan and Gorbachev held a summit where they agreed to address the situation in Angola. Because of this, Boffer's power waned. Now, Boffer was eventually succeeded by F.W. de Klerk, but the transfer of power was far from a smooth one. Boffer suffered a stroke in January 1989, and he made plans to resign from the presidency, 
on the understanding that he would be succeeded not by de Klerk, but by Baron de Plessis, his finance minister. When the National Party chose de Klerk, Boffer refused to resign and threatened to run for another five-year term. In the end, Boffer and de Klerk reached a compromise, and Boffer resigned after the presidential election of September 1989, which saw de Klerk elected to a full five-year term. So, people living under apartheid did not believe that de Klerk would be any different from Boffer, with Desmond Tutu calling the switch musical chairs. However, under pressure from the international community, de Klerk embarked on a series of reforms. As we already know, groups such as the African National Congress and the Communist Party were unbanned and Nelson Mandela was released from prison. The Ministry of Education announced that racial segregations in state schools would end. De Klerk began discussions with Nelson Mandela and the ANC on ways to end apartheid. However, despite these changes, police brutality continued, including an incident at a protest in Sibukeng where 11 people were killed by the police during a protest. As for Boffer, he was unhappy at the reforms and resigned from the National Party in May. A few months later, the National Party opened up its membership to all races. While de Klerk's reforms were ongoing, he hit a few bumps in the road from white South Africans. He assumed that negotiations with the ANC were the way to go, and he believed that he had his party and the electorate behind him. However, following his election, the ruling National Party had lost each of the three by-elections it contested to the Conservative Party. The final one of these was in the University City of Potchefstroom, and this was on February the 19th, 1992. The very next day, de Klerk announced the referendum to be held on March the 17th, 1992. So this was his power play, really. This was him saying, oh, hang on, we're having a bit of a wobble here. Right, I better have a referendum. Remember that the referendum was only open to white South Africans, because although apartheid was in the process of being dismantled, it was still very much in force. The question people were asked to vote on went as follows. Do you support continuation of the reform process, which the state president began on the 2nd of February 1990, and which is aimed at a new constitution through negotiation? Now, for me, that's a pretty unspecific and almost weaselly way of putting the question. So there's no mention of the ANC, no mention of Nelson Mandela, not even a mention of the apartheid. Even so, everyone understood that this was a referendum on apartheid itself. De Klerk's National Party, as well as most of the other white parties in South Africa, campaigned for a yes vote for fairly obvious reasons. The campaign for no was led by the Conservative Party. While there were the overt racists who simply wanted to keep apartheid to maintain white dominance of society, some of the reasons for voting no were a little more subtle. Some saw the ANC as a terrorist organisation, while others believed that they were communist. What they said they objected to was not that apartheid was being dismantled, but the negotiations were being held with the ANC. So one Afrikaner who was very much against a yes vote was the leader and founder of the Afrikaner Resistance Movement, or AWB, one Eugene Terblanche. Now, the AWB were unashamedly Nazi, and I'm not talking with hyperbole here. Their logo is fashioned on the Nazi eagle and their flag is just the flag of Nazi Germany with the swastika replaced with the triskelion of sevens. According to them, 777 represents the number of final victory because 777 is next to 666. I, I, I mean, it just shows you how stupid Nazis are. They have no idea how numbers work. No. 
There's anyway. a there's a great deal of numbers between uh, six 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 <laughs> seven seven seven. There's mm. six six seven, six six eight, mm-hmm. six six nine would usually follow. I, yeah. I mean, you get the point here. Exactly. Now Eugene Turblanche, I found this hard to believe, but he was born with that name because his name <laughs> his name could not be more racist. So the name Eugene comes from the Greek for well-bred, a term that lends itself to the highly dodgy field of eugenics, which was very popular in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Lots of laws were passed trying to sterilise feeble-minded people. Uh, Winston Churchill was a big fan of eugenics, something you don't hear about that often. Anyway, Eugene means well-bred, and Terre Blanche is French for white land. So, Ooh, so, his, okay. so, his, so his name that he was given means well-bred white land. There's a there's almost a way into a nature versus nurture discussion there, isn't there? It's a... <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's an incredible piece of nominative determinism. Anyway, the AWB would certainly have supported a no vote, and the Yes campaign even used the AWB to their advantage. One of their posters features a depiction of an AWB fighter with a gun alongside the text, you can stop this man, vote yes. Turnout was high, with news reports from the time reporting that polling stations were much busier than usual. In fact, it was as high as 85%. When the results came, they were surprising. Yes had won with a commanding 68% of the vote. If you look at a breakdown of the results, the strongest yes vote came in the more liberal urban regions such as Cape Town and Durban. The only region to vote no was the sparsely populated Petersburg region. This is found in the northeast of South Africa, right on the border with Mozambique. The strength of the yes vote surprised even de Klerk himself, who was of course happy that he had a strong mandate to continue discussions with the ANC to bring apartheid to a close. The day after the referendum, he declared, we have closed the book on apartheid. Well, Nelson Mandela said he was very happy indeed. As for the No campaign, they did something that sounds very familiar in November 2020. They claimed, without a shred of evidence, that there was massive voter fraud. Oh, <laughs> that old chestnut. Yep, absolutely. They cited a suspiciously strong yes vote in conservative strongholds, but of course their allegations went nowhere. So with the referendum in the bag, the negotiations between the government and the ANC continued. However, while it's often remembered as being fairly straightforward from that point on, nothing could be further from the truth. June 17th saw the Boipatong massacre, where members of the Inkafa Freedom Party, a rival party to the ANC, attacked the Boipatong township and killed 45 people. The South African police were suspected to have had a role in coordinating the attack, and Nelson Mandela pulled out of the talks. September 29th saw the Bishu massacre. It occurred in Siskai, which at the time was a Bantu stan, set up by the South African government and intended as a homeland for the Zosa people. It had a military leader, one Upa Gokozo. The ANC wanted to hold a march for democracy there, and Gokozo refused. When the ANC marchers reached Bisho, the capital of Siskai, Members of the Siskai Defence Force opened fire with automatic weapons and killed 29 people. Mandela wanted Gokozo to be held accountable, and after the massacre, talks with de Klerk resumed. On December 19th, de Klerk dismissed dozens of military officials, including six generals, accusing them of trying to undermine the negotiations. And despite a series of deadly attacks by the Azanian People's Army, 
which was the armed wing of the Pan-African Congress, 21 political parties approved the new interim constitution on November 18th, 1993. For their efforts, Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize on December 20th. 1994 saw South Africa's first multiracial elections, which saw Nelson Mandela become president, and the rest is history. But yeah, you want to know what happened to Eugene Terblanche, right? Well, on June 17th, 2001, he was imprisoned for assault and attempted murder. While locked up, he supposedly became a born-again Christian. Following his release, he went to live on his farm. On the 3rd of April 2020, he was hacked and beaten to death while he slept by two of his farm workers, supposedly following a dispute over pay. And his death threatened to spark racial tensions in South Africa, and it led to the ANC banning the singing of a song that featured the lyrics, Shoot the Boa. Thousands attended Ter Blanche's funeral before he was buried on his farm, and one of his attackers, Chris Malangu, was sentenced to life in prison for his murder. So... Just a few afterthoughts. I mean, writing this really brought to life to me the relative time scale of these events. So it's easy to think of horribly racist things like apartheid and, say, racial segregation of the USA being part of the bygone age. But Rosa Parks, the Montgomery bus boycott, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, all of these happened when the Beatles were topping the charts over here. And the event I'm talking about right now, the 1992 South African apartheid referendum, took place just after Dog of Death first aired, and we're properly into classic Simpsons now. You know, we're in series three, and apartheid is still a thing. Extraordinary. Absolutely. Uh, you never think you're that close to history, but uh, we've, we've not come that far. And I mean that, unfortunately, in a number of ways. But let's try and brighten this up by talking about South Africa and the Simpsons. I thought, ah, fantastic, open goal this time. You know, there'll, there'll be loads. There's not actually that much about South Africa and the Simpsons. <laughs> but I'll give you this. There is a reference to Krusty refusing to play Sun City in season 22, episode one, elementary school musical. Now, he tries to pass this off as his piece in uh, the dismantling of apartheid. But it actually turns out that it's due to the promoter's failure to provide an adequate bowl of potato chips, given that he has asked for it to be half regular and half ruffled. Right. Okay. And and as far as I can tell, that's it. Am I missing anything? Any uh, South Africa references in The Simpsons? Perhaps one of our fantastic listeners can clue me in. And if you do want to clue me in, then don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcastretrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. I just reshared it today. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.